Howdy and welcome to episode one of For the Greater Defense with Associate Professor of the Practice, retired Colonel Matt Gill, with the Intelligence Studies Program at the Bush School of Government and Public Service. In podcast one, we will be discussing Colonel Gill's path to the United States Army um, and eventually into military intelligence. Welcome, Colonel Gill. Hey, Jacob. It's glad to be here. So uh, on this first podcast, we really just want to get an idea of who uh, Colonel Gill is, uh, what led him to join the Army, and uh, why he uh, ultimately ended up in the military intelligence world. So um, can you get us, give us an idea of when you were first interested in joining the Army? Well, actually, to tell you the truth, I wasn't interested in joining the Army at all. I, I'd grown up, my father was in the Air Force, my stepfather was in the Navy. I think there was kind of inbred in me a little bit of a life of service to the country. Uh, but, you know, I went to Mississippi State. I'd grown up overseas. That just wasn't something I'd really thought about until my freshman year. And, and uh, you know, every freshman year is different. Some are good. Some are bad. I just happened to be having a bad freshman year. And and I, I joined the Mississippi State ROTC Department because I got a free hunting license if I finished the first year. Uh, and that was something I was interested in. You talked about growing up in a military family, having this ethos of service. When you wanted to join the military, was that ethos kind of a central factor to joining the military? Well, I don't know if it was a central factor, but it was just something that just grows up in your DNA. And, it, and I don't think you have to be a military dependent or military kid or, or, or Army brat or Air Force brat for that to be the case. But, you know, just watching my dad, watching my stepfather go through their careers, it just, you know, it became normal to be like that. And then when, you know, when you're joining ROTC, you know, not necessarily for to join the Army and make it a career, uh, you end up finding really good mentors. And as we discussed off uh, microphone, I, I ran into a Special Forces Master Sergeant, Master Sergeant Davidson. And uh, he essentially knew that I was going down the wrong path. Uh, he, he knew that uh, I needed something better, and he actually saw more in me than I really saw in myself as a freshman in college. And uh, he kind of convinced me in a really good way, almost entrapped me a little bit, uh, uh, to join the ROTC program as a full-time cadet, and then it was just kind of off to the races, and it maybe because my life prior to it had been in the military as a military dependent, it just kind of fit. So prior to joining the ROTC program, did you have a path that you were going down? What were you planning on doing with your life prior to that? Yeah, no, so great question. I, I actually didn't really have a path. I, I, I guess my only path was it was an expectation for me to go to college, uh, but at that point in time, it was kind of a meandering experience through that first year. Uh, and I think the Army, specifically the ROTC, kind of narrowed my pathway for me and, and really set in a vision of what I needed to be in the future just naturally. I think uh, a lot of us can point to different mentors that have guided us down the paths that we go now. Uh, what did Massard and Davidson mean to you? What specifically did he tell you um, to get you interested in the military? Things like that. Well, actually, I think uh, the, the part that really uh, hit me was, you know, when we all come to college, we go to college without our parents for the most part. And so you end up lacking this inherent structure that your parents give you. And really what Massard and Davidson provided me was not a father figure but kind of a father figure, somebody who would check in on my grades, uh, wondering how I was doing, whether I was studying, uh, staying out too late. He would, for some reason, I have no idea how he knew, but he would know when we were staying out way too late um, and really just bringing me back on the right pathway. So father figure, but not just a father figure. 
So as soon as you joined the Army ROTC, uh, what was your path in from that point on into actually joining the Army? Uh, were you a freshman at the time? Uh, and what did that path look like? Yeah, so my biggest problem was how do you pay for school? And I was working. Uh, at one point in time, I had two jobs, and I was studying. I was doing ROTC at the same time, playing a little bit of soccer for Mississippi State. And, uh, and it was probably not until my sophomore year that there was this big decision, do I leave school uh, and go find some well-meaning job, or is the Army going to invest back into me? And the Army chose to invest back into me. And they gave me a two-year scholarship. And after that, when you sit down and fill out the scholarship, you're kind of contracted with the Army at that point in time. And I guess it was just the, the inherent natural flow of that life uh, was, oh, well, I guess I'm joining the Army now. And I never once in my life ever thought that I would be joining the Army. So you spent your time at Mississippi State, you said, playing soccer early? Well, I played a little bit of soccer there. I grew up overseas, and you know, and it's, it's football over there, but uh, soccer at Mississippi State. But that kind of died out a little bit because when I was committed to the Army, uh, you can't just graduate with a 1.7 you know, GPA and underwater BB stacking. You actually have to uh, have a good GPA to succeed. And so my focus on life started to focus on what my future career would be. Plus, I knew I had met the woman that I was going to be married to. I knew we knew it when we met. And so there was the added factor of not only do I have to go commit to a career, but I also have to commit to the family that I'm about to join together. And and so it just kind of made it easy. The the harder decision was, well, what am I going to do in the army? And well, my dad was a pilot. My stepfather was a pilot. My grandfather joined the US Army Air Corps at six o'clock in the morning. And by seven o'clock that evening, he was in the United States Air Force. He actually joined the Air Force the day of its birthday. So I had this long lineage of aviation in the family. And so I applied for aviation. And uh, well, that's when you find out what happens when you take the King's shilling. And I did not get aviation. I ended up uh, being picked for the Military Intelligence Corps and spent the four years, first four years of that in the field artillery. Awesome. So you actually, in class, you talk about the development of the military intelligence corps in the, the Army. Was that at a time when that was um, still considered a more professional career, or was it still building into that? Well, so the, the U.S. Army Intelligence Corps kind of really uh, came about as a new entity in the mid-70s, in the mid-1970s. And so by kind of 1994, graduation in 1996, we're post-Desert uh, Storm, which we all in our studies learned from General Stewart that that was kind of where the modern Intel Corps was almost uh, had its coming out party, uh, where it kind of showed its worth to the nation. And so I would say... I wasn't there in the beginning, but I was there right when we proved ourselves as a core, uh, and, and I hopped on that bandwagon pretty quick. Uh, again, forced four years as a field artilleryman, and then uh, transitioned over to Intel as a captain. So when you joined the Army, did you expect to spend a career in the Army, or did you expect to use it as a leveraging or jumping off point into something else? You know, actually, so... My wife and I had that conversation really early on, and I, I remember it. I, she probably remembers the conversation more clearly than me. But, but it was, okay, we're going to go and try this Army thing, and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. Uh, but I think we were just young. Uh, we, were, we were kind of maybe blinded by starting a new life. And, uh, and, well, the Army was good to us. 
Yeah, and I think when we get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people in the intelligence community or the military, it's often seen as a as a joint uh, between a husband and a wife when they do it together. So did she view that as something that she was ready to jump into, or did she maybe not know what she was getting herself into? No, I think – well, so we had had a lot of talks, and she talked to my dad and talked with my family. So she kind of knew what it – meant to be a good army camp follower and we both agreed we weren't going to be an army camp follower that she was going to be a part of everything um, as much as she could be and so no I don't think we were blind to it I think we were going into it very wide-eyed and accepting and and, you know there's a sense of excitement to it you know you're you're leaving college you're starting a life and unfortunately the army stationed me at Fort Sill Oklahoma in the middle of nowhere so that kind of put a little dent in our vision of it uh, but then we got stationed. Our, my first duty station was with 3rd Infantry Division at uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia, uh, just outside Savannah. I could not have picked a better place to start an Army career. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how your time in the field artillery influenced your later experiences in the military intelligence field? So one of the unique things the Army does with intelligence officers is the mass majority of them don't start out as intelligence officers. They they start out in the combat arms field, so infantry, armor, field artillery. Uh, I got picked for artillery for whatever reason. Uh, it's not my army. They made the call. Uh, and we jumped in uh, with both feet into the water. And I think what that taught me to do was how to lead, how to start leading young people, how to start leading older people. Uh, how do you lead somebody who's been doing that job for years and you're brand new? And I think that was uh, that was probably the, the biggest thing that I learned at being a field artilleryman was how to lead and blow things up. Well, that's always an important part of being in the Army, I think. Absolutely. So as you transitioned, you, you, you said you spent four years in the field artillery. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was your first uh, entry into the military intelligence world? So at that point in time, probably about my third year uh, as a first, uh, being a first lieutenant at that point in time, uh, I wanted to go into special forces. Uh, and so I went to the interview. I did the physical. I did the evaluation. Uh, my packet was accepted, uh, and that's when I fir- found out my first mistake being a husband is that uh, I sought forgiveness and not permission. And so I went home that night after receiving the letter that said, yes, you can report to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to begin uh, special force and selection and training. Uh, and then I went home and said, hey, Jenny, check this out. And uh, she's like, we're not doing that. And, and I said, what do you mean? I've been, I've been through the process. She says, we're not doing that. And so we didn't do it. Uh, and then about eight months later, the army came down and said, your time as an artilleryman is over. Uh, it's time to get promoted to captain and, uh, you're going to report to Fort Huachuca, Arizona to go through intelligence training for the next year. Uh, and that was my transition. It was pretty easy transition. Emotionally, I really just missed being in the field artillery, but the challenges that the intelligence community provides as a young officer is tremendous. And, and so I found that same excitement joining the army. And I got that same level of excitement as we transitioned into the intelligence corps. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you just referenced uh, in as a young military intelligence officer? Yeah, so you're a bit immature. You know, you want to have a lot of fun. You want to do good. Uh, you want to lead your people well. And at that point in time, again, the, the harbinger of, of the future of intel was only five years behind us. And so the intelligence corps was kind of just really finding its uh, sea legs. And a lot of people view the intelligence corps wrongly as just a bunch of staff work. It's all magic. You know, nobody really knows how intelligence is done uh, until you get really inside of it and learn how it 
it works, how the processes work, the tools that you use, the relationships you have. And I think that was just a hard struggle going from being in the field with my people, getting to fire massive weapon systems and make big giant holes in the earth and getting ready to go to war. Obviously, this was war was not at that point in time. That would come later. Uh, but no, I, I went into Fort Huachuco with a fresh energy and accepting energy that I'm here to serve, that, I, that this is not my army. I'm just gracious enough to be a part of it. Uh, and yeah, I, I really, uh, it took me a while to transition. But once I did, that's when duty and loyalty come in. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about um, that perception of military intelligence as staff officer work? And can you explain a little bit more what that means and then what the reality of it is um, if it's not staff officer work? Yeah. So I think a lot of people, when they look at the military, they just look at a lot of the kinetic stuff, dropping bombs, shooting guns, shooting cannons, uh, flying helicopters and things like that. What they don't realize is to get those people to shoot the cannons, fire the guns, fly the helicopters, fly the planes – is there's an entire intelligence apparatus that is getting them to the place that they're going to go drop bombs, shoot guns, and fly planes. And I think because the military is so action-oriented, and by nature I am action-oriented, I've always been since I was a young kid, that uh, people don't understand until they get into the community just the tremendous amount of work intelligence does to, to just point the military in the right direction. Um, and when you get in the intelligence community, you find out really quickly that it is not desk work. You're not sitting behind a typewriter, uh, but you've got to be that really good mix of academic and soldier at the same time. Whereas an artilleryman, I just needed to be a good leader and a really good soldier. But as an intelligence professional, I had to be a really good academic. I had to be a great researcher. And more importantly, I had to be able to be a good communicator. Because if you get up in front of action-oriented people, and you're spitting snot bubbles, and you're not coming across concisely, they don't respect you. Uh, Your credibility in what you say diminishes pretty rapidly. And can you tell us about the first time that you moved from maybe the training aspect of the intelligence world into the um, the action-oriented, the real world? Yeah, so this is really exciting. Again, uh, the Army, of course. my wife and I decided that, okay, we're in the intelligence community, but we want to go overseas. I grew up overseas in Germany and Belgium, and I wanted to show that to my wife. I promised her when we got engaged that I want to show you the world, not just Mississippi. And so we wanted to go overseas. And so I got an assignment to a place called Bad Eibling Station, Germany. And during the Cold War, that was a major signals intelligence collection base against the Russians and the Soviets. And I just happened to be a, uh, trained as a signals intelligence collection officer. And uh, probably about a month before we were moving, uh, in fact, our household goods, as in all of our couches, all of our clothes, all of our pots and pans, were already on a ship across the ocean to go to Germany. I got notified by the Army that they were closing Bad Eibling Station. And I said, okay, what are my options? And having just come from Fort Bragg in the airborne community, once you get into the airborne community, it's like Pringles. You don't just want one assignment there. You want all your assignments there. And uh, my branch chief said, well, you can go to Korea or you can go back to Fort Bragg. And so naturally I chose to go back to the airborne community. And that was our transition. We, uh, we just had our first child, Emily. She was born at uh, Fort Huachuca. And uh, I put them on a plane 
sent them, and then I drove across the United States trying to reroute all of our pots, pans, and couches and clothes back from Germany. We did finally get those uh, eventually, but it took a little while. I bet your wife was happy about that. She was very happy, especially when we have a, a brand new child. So, And so uh, as we've talked about in uh, in class and in different forums before, uh, your career really shifted after 9-11, as with anyone in the military or uh, the intelligence community. Can you talk a little bit about what uh, that event meant for your career um, and what did it ultimately, did it change the trajectory of your career and, and keep you in longer than it maybe what your career would have otherwise? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's whole generations of soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, and Coasties that that 9-11 fundamentally changed everybody's career, not just in the military, but uh, in the United States, in some some cases globally. Well, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division, America's Guard of Honor. You know, we're the rapid reaction paratrooper organization to react to all crises. Uh, And on 9-11, I was the senior intelligence officer to an airborne infantry battalion. Uh, and I remember my battalion commander, as we watched the towers fall, he had my first failure as an intelligence officer was when he asked me the question, well, who did this? And I had to say, I don't know. And there I am, my first time to shine as a professional intelligence officer. I can't answer the question. And, and we went through a lot of procedures to uh, to get ready to deploy, to react to something. And then the next question he asked me was, where are we going? And I said, I don't know. And I couldn't answer him. So there's my second strike as an intelligence professional. And then about an hour later, um, he asked me again, where are we going? And I just said, sir, I think we're going to New York City. And uh, because part of the response for the 82nd Air Division is also a civil disturbance response to not just go and apprehend people or, you know, fight nations wars, but to secure population centers. And that was my biggest guess. So I was wrong. Uh, the very next day, we were told that uh, this was Osama bin Laden, this was al-Qaeda, and that we would be going to war in Afghanistan. And after that, uh, we uh, flew out, did about a month's worth of desert training, and then prepared to deploy to Afghanistan, and that's when we went to Kandahar. Now, the question that you asked about changed the trajectory. I think it changed the trajectory of the entire military, because before then, all of our training was about Saddam Hussein, North Korea, fighting the Soviet horde coming through the Fulda Gap. It was this very conventional, orderly response to war. And now all of a sudden we, we've been handed this low-intensity conflict with you know, this unseen enemy that has no order, and that's the problem we were handed. And, uh, and so we deployed to Kandahar. I deployed for the first 10 months of the war, uh, came back, uh, and we thought it was going to be uh, – you know, kind of some time off with your first combat deployment. There's a lot to process. Uh, and then uh, right before we redeployed back to the United States, uh, they handed us the plans to Baghdad International Airfield. And uh, we're in Kabul at this point in time. We had just finished the invasion of Afghanistan, and now the nation was ex- asking us to go invade Iraq. Uh, so we did fly home for a couple of months. Uh, we did a real quick train-up. We did not go to Baghdad International Airport, but we in, uh, we invaded from Kuwait to Ramadi, Iraq. Um, and so you're talking about two completely different years of going and invading against the low intensity conflicts, and then all of a sudden we're invading a nation state. Um, so pretty exciting. It changed my career completely. And then I spent about two more years in the conventional army, uh, and the one thing that combat did for me was kind of just really brand into me that sense of service. Uh, 
And that's when I made the decision to ask my wife, uh, I want to go do something special. And I want to go into special operations. And so when I redeployed the second time, so my third combat tour, uh, I took command of a company. And after that, I chose to go into the special operations community. But this time with uh, with your wife's permission? This time with my wife's permission. Reluctant permission, if I don't point that out. Well, uh, we're about uh, out of time for this episode, but I, you know, you've talked a lot about some pretty remarkable parts of your career, and we're going to flesh those out over the, the rest of this, this season of podcasts. But um, you mentioned right at the end uh, that these, these first two deployments, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they fueled your, your sense of service. Um, and obviously, as students at the Bush School of Government and Public Service, that is something that draws us all together. Uh, can you talk a, a little bit more about what does public service mean to you? Why is it important? And why do you think it's something that we should, we should value as young, um, young adults? Yeah, so I, you know, I don't think you actually have to be in the military to say that you serve. And the biggest part is you're serving something greater than yourself. And what's greater than yourself than the defense of your nation? Because, you know, as Ronald Reagan said, we are the last place. We are the last place on earth. And I've traveled to almost every continent. I've been to tons of countries. I fought on three of those continents. And I can tell you that America is absolutely the last bastion of freedom. And why would somebody not want to protect that for their children? And so I can be melodramatic and tell you that, you know, the losses that we incurred in soldiers and friends from both of those invasions, you know, that that's kind of, you know, really branded in me that sense of service. But it was when I would deploy home and I would see my kids and my wife and know that, well, gosh, if we don't go do this, Emily's going to have to at some point in time. Uh, and then Julia, my middle daughter, and then Sarah, my, my youngest daughter. So if we don't do this now for the country, what are we handing off to our children? And there's no greater call to duty. Absolutely. And I think, again, that's what brings us all together here at the Bush School and why we do what we do. So uh, we're just very thankful that you were uh, willing to share your stories and your experiences uh, in the intelligence community. So thank you for joining us on this first podcast. And we really look forward to, to having many more conversations on this topic. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. I really enjoyed this.